Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're converting people one stomach at a time to what fresh food can taste like. You use whatever you can use and you respect every bit of it. You know, if it's in season, you use it. We need to study and we need to read and we need to know about our region and what it's doing before we can start putting things on dishes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Quicksand Food Connection. Today I speak with Phil Lavers from Moonacres Farm in Fitzroy Falls. Moonacres is one of the most beautiful vegetable farms I've ever been to. It's a certified organic farm. And Phil is a really interesting guy. He's really insightful and passionate about producing vegetables. They've got a, a beautiful property out there near Fitzroy Falls, and he really promotes for people to connect to their food. And he's very realistic about the economics and the viability of growing vegetables, and about the future of vegetable production, especially in the Southern Highlands. Phil is one of our featured producers in the Southern Highlands Cookbook, and he also gave us a recipe for his kale pasta, which is where the conversation starts. He's a really interesting guy, and there's a lot to be learned from some of the insights that Phil has. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Phil Lavers from Moonacres Farm in Fitzroy Falls. See, the thing about that is that it's it's kale cooked properly. Yeah. I made a I made a um, so I got tomatoes, cavallinero tomatoes, and zucchini. Right, and you just cook the cavallinero for maybe 20 minutes just by itself. And then when you finish, you don't actually taste the cavallinero. You taste tomatoes and zucchini, but it's got this rich base to it. Mm. And without the cavallinero, it would just taste light. But with the cavallinero, it tastes like there was no garlic. The only herb in there was marjoram. So it's a simple food, but you need that cavallinero base to it that makes it feel really rich. Mm. Uh, And a lot of, I reckon a lot of sauces that you can buy, they don't have the richness to them. Mm. And because... There's two reasons. One is they don't cook the tomatoes long enough, so the tomatoes, the MSG in the tomatoes doesn't develop. Mm-hmm. Because tomatoes naturally develop MSG when you cook them low and long. And so that's one reason. And then they don't have something from the cabbage family that gives it that base note. Yeah. And I reckon you need the base note. A lot of good sauces for pasta have either cabbage as a, as a base in it or whatever. And cavallinero is pretty much a cabbage. Yeah, perfect. Mm. And you were saying, I mean, we talked about it before, but you reckon a lot of people don't cook their kale no, for long enough? Not even close, yeah. Everyone thinks it's just like silver beet. It's completely different. Yeah. yeah. Think of it as a carrot. So you, 
Carrots you've got to cook for a long time because they're hard. Cavo's the same. Yeah. Throw it in with the carrots and you'll get the idea that you, once it's softened up, it softens up, it's beautiful. Yeah. And so this dish that Tess is eating now, um, is that just like when did you when did you start cooking this one? This is I mean, it's a, it's a simple dish. Do you want to tell us about it? It's a, so we, three ingredients. Yeah, we <clears throat> that's when I first started to grow kale. I had no idea what to do with it. And so I just spoke to uh, you know, people pretty much just old Italian nonnas. Yeah. Right. So if you want to learn how to cook, the right person to talk yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I went to a cafe in Barrel called Gastronome, which is now it's no longer there. But the matriarch of that family is an old Italian nonna, and she just said, uh, you know, with, all you need is garlic and salt and cavallonera, and that's all you need in life. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, right. So how do I cook it? And she said, just that, that's all you need. So um, so I tried that and uh, developed this dish. So I've, I've added marjoram because I like the marjoram. I love sweet marjoram because mm. everyone says, no, oregano is a great herb. Oregano is poor man's marjoram. Yeah. Seriously, <laughs> it's, it's so sweet and I just love the flavour. Yeah. And you can, in that, I think I just should have added just a slight bit more marjoram, but it's a good blend. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. And how long do you cook your kale down for then? You, you I reckon... You put it in a fry pan with just some oil for low, low heat. So with this, I, that unusually that includes all the stalks. Yeah. So what I do is I strip the leaf off the stalk. Actually, we should put that in the recipe, shouldn't I? Strip the leaf yeah, yeah. off the stalk, and then I cut the the stalk so they're probably half a centimeter long, and then I literally fry them in quite high heat for about five minutes, almost till it burns. Mm-hmm. Keep moving, keep it moving. Then when then I've chopped up the leaves so they're about a centimeter strip. I throw them in, pour on some water, mix it through. And then clamp the lid on, and then just let it steam in its own juice for about twenty minutes mm-hmm. on low heat. Yeah, and that way you get the the kale, all the cells, cell walls of the kale break, and it turns soft. Yep. in that period. Nice. And then you were saying you, in the recipe you clear a bit of space, and then get your garlic and marjoram yep. involved. Clear a space in the plant. Just leave everything in the bottom. Clear a space. Add a bit of extra oil. Um, get the oil reasonably hot. Throw in the garlic, which has been finely chopped, and then. You can, when the garlic smells sweet, there's a point where it's heating up when it smells sweet, throw in the marjoram and the salt right then, and then uh, mix it all, th- let it let it cook until the garlic's, you know how garlic almost goes translucent when it's well cooked? Yeah. And then um, mix it all through, divide it into two, and then stick blend, add a tonne of oil, like two or three tablespoons of oil. Mm-hmm. This time use good olive oil. When I first start cooking, I use um, just a, a vegetable oil, a rice bran oil. Mm-hmm. But for the end, you want the flavour of a good olive oil. Mm-hmm. And then just I stick blend half. Yeah. So okay. you get a smooth paste with half, and then you get the you know the cut leaf with the other half. Yeah. So, so you're able to get, coat it's, your spaghetti as well. Yeah, and you yeah, it's a texture thing as well as because you don't want to be eating sort of kale leaves all the time. Yeah. You want to have a bit of a paste, and that's yeah, nice. you form the paste with the oil and the the blended cavallonera. Yeah. Great. And, I mean, kale is something that you've got a lot of out, out on Moon Acres at the moment. <laughs> Too much. Yeah. yeah. But do you find it hard to, you, I mean, you know, it's such a popular thing at the moment and thing, words like superfood come into people's vernacular and, and you, you've seen the, the kale wave rise, as yeah. you were saying before? Yeah. Um, so when did we first grow it? We would have first grown it in, like, 2007 probably. Yeah. And purely... 
I just knew someone who'd grown it maybe 10 years earlier. Uh, and he said, oh, why don't you try some kale? So he grew the black kale, Cavalier Nero, and the curly kale. And literally, we didn't know what to do with it. So yeah. I went and talked to a whole lot of chefs, including this nonna, and uh, put it on the table, and people started to buy it. And, uh, you know, just all the restaurants, we were just lucky with our timing. It was um, the seedling grower that we get our seedlings from, she happened to have some and said, yeah, I can supply them. So off we went. And these days, kale's really come off the boil in terms of... Uh, yeah, it's 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 not as popular as it used to be, for sure. We've we're selling uh, like in the order of two hundred bunches a week into the wholesale market now, mm-hmm. and that's that's good because it means we'll shift maybe eighty percent of what we got out there. Yeah, if that keeps up. But we were expecting higher demand, but the higher demand just hasn't come through. So next year we're going to grow a lot less kale. Yeah, okay. But it's one of these things, you know, the the problem with a leafy vegetable like kale is that you've got to have enough of it so that if you do get an aphid infestation or if you do get, you know, the slugs climbing up it or whatever, you can keep your supply, your, your customers happy with yeah. good supply. So you need to grow, you know, at least one and a half times what you expect to sell because mm-hmm. otherwise you just, you won't be, have the consistency and once you don't have the consistency, they'll just go to the next bloke in terms of sales. Yeah, okay. So you need to overstock. Yeah. And that's something that that's something that you do right throughout a lot of the produce that that you've got is overstocking. I think you were talking about before about your apples, about how you have a really good year and then the next year you almost write off because yeah. you can't always have it good, especially, you know, not being able to spray, not, you know, being organic, you've got to... Yeah, you've just got to go with the flow. The this year the orchard hygiene is not what we'd normally have the the we just haven't had time we've just been because we've got so much other crop in there we just haven't had the time to keep the orchards as clean as we like but also we had a phenomenal year of apples last year the weather in november basically from november to december was not good apple weather so why spend a lot of effort on something which isn't going to be a spectacular crop Mm -hmm. so i've just let that slide a little bit so the apples, in my view, just aren't tasting great. I didn't think they were ever going to taste great just from the weather. So stick with what is going to taste great. You said is, the Granny Smiths or we got hopes a, for the Granny Smiths this year? Yeah, we got a bit of hope, hanging out a bit of hope there for the, yeah. <laughs> for the Granny Smiths because it's hot now, so they'd be getting sweet right now, and yep. they're, they're still a month and a half, two months away from being fully ripe. Mm-hmm. And once they are, you never know. With the moisture that we got in the soil from all the rain in December you know we could be looking pretty good for some good tasting grannies but the earlier varieties no too wet too cold mm. yeah it's crazy this weather this late february sort of heat wave and yep. yeah yeah I, I, I like a february heat wave because it means that the summer crops the tomatoes the eggplants the capsicums the chilies the beans they're going off out there right now yeah. and that's just that's exciting beautiful so that they compensate you know we're going to have the sales in the tomatoes will compensate for what we miss out on the apples. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it's a, it's a, it's always balancing, you know. And you've got to kind of hedge your bets in that way as well. Having having crops where you, can, if one doesn't work out, you can another one will in that environment. Yeah, and you, you just it's it's all a matter of timing, and you can't get it right all the time. And the weather's not your friend. And 
you know that so that's you try and have as many irons as you economically can in the fire mm. and then hope the ones that do work out pay for the ones that don't mm. so yeah it's just um every year is a is another roll of the dice yeah that's it so this year the kale hasn't been selling as well as we would have imagined but the silver beet's going off like you wouldn't believe we're selling hundreds of bunches of silver beet okay. and uh we've never sold a bunch of silver beet wholesale ever before so <laughs> i don't ask me you know <laughs> whereas we've sold we sold thousands of bunches of kale wholesale and this year we've the crop we've planted less of we're selling wholesale you know don't ask me mate yeah. <laughs> i just grow it hard to pick it's very hard to pick yeah and you've got you said the the beans are going off do you want to tell us about that you were showing us some of the varieties that you had before and they're absolutely delicious having a bite of a few of them yeah my favorite bean by a long shot is the scarlet runner and the thing i love about the scarlet runner is it's not a it's not a warm climate bean you you can't really grow a good scarlet runner in sydney because it's too hot the flowers won't set good fruit and because it's just too hot so it's a cold climate bean we're cold climate and it just means you've got a bean that is designed for our climate growing in our climate which turns out to produce sensational tasting beans mm. and uh, the, the other thing I like about them is if you were to line up a French round bean a classic Australian green bean and a scarlet runner everyone would choose the other two by what they look like but if you weren't allowed to look at them and taste them everyone would choose a scarlet runner because it, it it tastes sensational so mm. i like a, i kind of like the black sheep of the family having the best taste yeah that's good and uh, people people will walk by them and then if you let them at the markets last week i said everyone try the scarlet runners the other two beans were selling fine i said try the scarlet runners by the end of the day we'd empty the scarlet runner crate and there was still some left over the others because mm. we're we're educating people about varieties of work in our environment yeah. and as an organic farmer that's my job is to find those things because I, I can't spray to keep the pests off the ones that don't grow well yeah so you know go again go with your strength go what works and yeah, the scarlet sure. runner is exactly the bean for me yeah uh, easy to eat easy to cook don't need to string them looks good looks great yeah <laughs> tastes great yeah and the flowers are pretty and the beans the actual beans themselves the seed that you plant is very interesting it's a deep purple okay so you know that's a good one to take to schools and show the kids for sure you know they'll play with them they'll, they look like lollies they'll play with them and then when they actually see a plant coming up it you know their eyes pop out of their head and they that's and then great. then they eat them yeah exactly <laughs> so i love that yeah um and you were saying about like beans as well and you know educating the public about different varieties of produce um Beans in particular, are saying you're doing a, a bean dinner up in Sydney. There's yeah. a chef up there that's. Yep, uh, the restaurant's called Berta, and the chef's called Jamie. Uh, I think his surname's Irving. Yeah, we've we've been with Berta since it opened, and we had a every now and then we just go up there, feature a project a, pro, a, a product that we've got. So we've done garlic dinners, we've done potato dinners, we've done brassica dinners, we've done. What else have we done? What have we done with Jamie? We did, um, I can't remember what, oh, cabbages. You know, lots of different, we just feature a particular plant and then he builds a menu around what we're going to deliver. Set menu, people go up there and uh, just enjoy a beautiful dinner featuring those prod products. 
the thing I like about it is I'll get up and give a bit of a talk, yeah. and then that means that the the guests in the restaurant get to meet the farmer and get to learn a little bit about bit what, about what they're eating, and I'll take some uh, some flowers up so they can see why they're called Scarlet Runners, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I just think it's fun to as a farmer, it's incredibly satisfying to you know start planning something and then six months later watch people pay to eat it. I mean that's you know that's why we're on the planet you know yeah. to, to do that I love that yeah that's it's great very satisfying yeah and I mean as we were talking about earlier a lot of the distribution you do is direct to chefs yeah and that's important to you I guess do you want to tell us a bit about how that works yeah well we just got lucky and ran into a couple of chefs early on and so when was that that would have been 2008 and they just purely by chance and that they, they really liked our produce and after a while they introduced us to the restaurateur and said you know can you supply us and we did we started small just with one restaurant um, delivering in the Sydney and since then people have heard about our produce Uh, there's a new restaurant opening I think this week and they've heard about our produce they've gone to look at it they want to come down to the farm and they they want our produce and the, the reason they want it is because they order on a Monday, we harvest on Tuesday, we deliver on Wednesday. So the produce is you know, at the very outside 30 hours old by the time it gets into their restaurant. And that, is, that's, that freshness gives you a massive taste advantage, which means from their side they don't have to do nearly as much work to make the food taste fantastic. Mm-hmm. We did a dinner in Sydney where we were the veggie supplier and something went wrong with one of the meat dishes and the chef was panicking and then afterwards she came to me and said your silver beet saved the day and I said well what, did you, what do you mean she said well I, I put it in hot water I pulled it out I put it on the plate and people loved it <laughs> so it meant that she didn't have to do anything to it and that, that you know your I think the way I think about it is where we're converting people one stomach at a time to what fresh food can taste like mm-hmm. and once they've tasted it you know, they just, they don't go back. Yeah. So you know, it, it takes, you know, the, the whole organic thing, in theory on paper, it sounds great, but turn it away from theory and put it into practice and shove it in your gob and eat it and you can taste the difference. If it's, if it's well grown in the right soil, in the right climate, you'll taste the difference and it's fresh. Yeah. And uh, it's very satisfying to have people come up and say, mate, I've never tasted a bean like that, which is what they'll do. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that uh, experience of people saying, "Yep, it's you know that's what a bean can taste like," and yeah. it it changes people's perception of food. And uh, you know, my my mission is to grow grow great food. Yeah, and it's nice to have an audience for that. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the chefs are the people that you know are more educated about different varieties and about the ways of preparing stuff and treating food with respect and. I mean, the conversation we were having before about broad beans mm. and about how you can't sell the broad beans that, you, that, that you'd like to um, wholesale because, you know, it's the way the economics works. You can put overripe broad beans in a container and sell them by the kilo. Yep. Um, do, you want to, do you want to just go over what you were saying about that, sure. actually? Yeah. Sure. So the cost to the farmer is effectively how long does it take to put a certain number of anything in a box? So that means that if, if you're getting paid by the weight, the, 
the bigger the unit that you're putting in the box, the less time it takes to get a certain weight. So a good example is, say, chilies or um, capsicums or broad beans or uh, what else? So any beans, anything by weight. So the bigger the bean you shove in the box, the less number of beans you have to put there. Mm. You get the same price from the wholesalers. They don't distinguish on quality. So the idea if you're doing wholesale stuff is to make the bean as big as possible. The problem with that is is that the taste of an overripe anything is not even half as good as it is when it's picked at its optimum for eating. So what we try to do is we pick things at the optimum for eating, which means it's way too expensive to go through the wholesale market because we've had to, instead of putting 100 broad beans in a box, we've had to put 500 because they're small and they're sweet. Luckily, we found a whole slew of restaurants that just love our small broad beans, or they love um, our small Brussels sprouts is a very good example. Last year, when we were selling to one of the restaurants in Sydney called Esther, they actually said, you know, make sure the broad beans, not the broad beans, the the Brussels sprouts are small. Uh, I said, that's no problem, but you're going to have to pay three times the price. I said, don't care. Just we want the Mm flavour. And so it's nice to have the chef that appreciates the flavour and supporting him is a, is a customer base that he's generated over time that will just love what he's doing with the Brussels sprouts or whatever it is. So it, it ends up all the time we're underpinned by a taste-conscious public who have found the restaurants, who have found the grower, who are supporting people like me to develop good quality food that goes down the line and, and is able to be appreciated by people turning up at restaurants. Yeah, that's great. And, I mean, that that's a it's almost a complete cycle. Like, it's going straight from you and especially doing things like these dinners where you can educate the people about what it is that you do. It gives yep. people a connection and more and more these days people are looking for that connection to where their food comes from, yep. hopefully. Yeah. yeah, well, every year we do, a, we do a dinner called the Harvest Moon Dinner and... Um, at the local hall. We always do it for a charity. Um, we get one of Sydney's, in fact, he's now an international chef. He comes down, donates his time, and we pick a cause. You know, we supported the school for a couple of years last year. We supported the hall. And we put on a dinner. Uh, it's 99% of the food is from the farm. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, 70 bucks a head. We get 120 people there. And you just get ten dishes of outstanding food in a in a celebration of the harvest, which is, you know, harvest moons in autumn when the farm is at its most productive, and it's a celebration of the year that's gone. You know, it's fantastic, and you connect people to the farm, back to food, which, you know, I'm not anti supermarket, but I am. I do think that we've lost that connection between where the food comes from to how you eat it definitely and if we can connect people you know you can connect people by bagging out the supermarkets but that just turns people off you you want to offer the positive and the positive is freshness uh, a way of farming that's not eating our future and an experience that's community communal and enjoyable and that the harvest moon dinners are the embodiment of all of that and it's just fun you've got sensational chefs sensational produce great community well served when i was looking at the people serving and 
they were getting the dishes out, 120 plates out in less than five minutes. I mean, these are, you know, it's good quality staff. Mm. It's all done really well. So that that's fun. It's to, to be the the underlying farm that generates these ventures and these experiences is incredibly satisfying. Yeah. You know, despite the, you know, the hard work. Farming's, you know, farming's actually physically hard work. Yeah. So, but it's nice to turn that into something that people can get a great food experience from not just it's more than the food you know if you if you were to take the same food and you were to eat it uh, under blaring fluorescent lights in a white room it would taste okay but if you do it in a nicely decorated hall with a bunch of friends with a nice atmosphere cooked in the community it's going to taste 10 times better yeah so it's the communal thing is important to us as well for sure and um you also get you also get to have direct contact with you know your customers at the farmers markets as well yeah i love that and talking to people about how to cook it or what they've done or you know a variety you know i, I learn from my customers you know you, you got someone whose dad forever grew this particular sort of peach or whatever and you you say right next year i'm going to look into grafting on some of that those apples or whatever it is so it's a two-way thing it's not just me saying buy this it's me saying well yeah i could grow that i i you know, give me some seeds. I'll give it a go. Um, haven't tried that recipe before. Yeah, it's. I love that. It's you know continually learning from your customers and building that culture mm. of food enjoyment. It's such a healthy thing to do. Yeah, it's great. And the recipes is something that that I think is really important. You know, about educating people how to cook um, kale or whatever it may be. They come to you. You tell them about a product that they might not have cooked with before. You know, you send them away with some and a recipe, and then they they cook it at home. They absolutely love it, and they want to make that recipe again. They come back to you, and yep. you develop a, a, a serious connection. It's not just you know selling a bag of spuds to someone and saying see you later, enjoy your mashed potatoes. No, it's it's deeper than that. Yeah, which I, is great. At the hockey <clears> dinner, not last year, the year before, just because in the hockey team they call me. Um, you know, they make jokes about my kale a lot. <laughs> they call me organic Phil. And <laughs> and they, you know, they they uh, tease me about the kale. So for the hockey dinner, I just cooked up a huge batch of kale chips yeah. and just gave kale chips to everyone. And, you know, these uh, people who wouldn't know kale if it run them over, they're ringing me up saying, Phil, how do you do those kale chips? <laughs> and I play tennis with one of the women. Well, I play tennis with a lot of the women who ate those kale chips and they say man how do you do that so you know people who've only ever eaten you know meat and two veg if you can introduce them to kale or whatever give them a way of enjoying it they'll come back mm. and you know for the last night of tennis i'm going to take a big batch of kale chips it's it's you know it's 20 minutes to make them mm-hmm. everyone loves them and it just gives that again it's that communal shared experience i, I know that her niece her niece once rang me up and said phil she's coming over to dinner i've got to make kale chips how do i do it (laughs) and so you know i just ran her through it and now they every now and then will have kale chips so you know spread the word it's uh you know it's out there for everyone yeah that's great um going back i guess could have talked about this at the start but do you want to just tell us a bit about the farm like how many acres you got and you know what what are the main crops you put in how how it all works yeah right so um I think it's about 150 acres. Yep. We farm about five acres of veggies a year, which doesn't sound a lot, but 
when you're picking them it's a lot uh, we do about a, an acre and a half of spuds uh, we do about an acre and a half of corn we've got about a third of an acre of rhubarb got about mm, 600 productive fruit trees and we've got a massive range of veggies that we grow in that plot uh, been doing it since 2006 mm-hmm. and uh, just you know want to keep on keeping on just building customers um, trying to get the word out there about how good food can taste mm-hmm. and building our client base yeah. uh, which is you know the the th- the secret to farming's simple but hard to achieve. Don't yeah. grow it till you sold it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the selling, the growing's not easy, but the selling can be equally hard. And so, yeah. you've got to make sure that you can move what you grow. Yeah. And so that's what you know. We spend a lot of time. We do a lot of, um, I don't know, just schmoozing's not quite the right word, but communicating with our customers to make sure that they're. They're learning from what we've got, what's available, if there's any problems, we'll fix it, whatever. Some of the varieties we grow have actually come from suggestions of chefs. You know, we've gone through seed catalogues with the chefs and saying, oh, yeah, my dad used to grow this or whatever, and we now grow it for them. And that's fantastic because, again, that goes back into the, goes back onto the table at the, at the farmer's market and people say, oh, I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. How do you cook it or what do you do with it? And, you know, education people learn from it yeah that's it and as you say that that's a a two-way street you know you'll have chefs and customers and things saying oh this is an interesting thing or you never know what might be the next kale as well that comes along and 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 explodes for for one reason or another but i guess the people that have their finger on the pulse of that sort of stuff are the chefs um who you have constant liaison with which yeah 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 we try and um there's a few things in the pipeline we've got a, an acre we got we got well, we got about eight acres out there ready to go ish we've got two actually working right now where we've got one grower one acre and one year's income so the idea is that we take an acre we train up people to be able to farm that and that from that acre they're able to generate a live a living income off that so one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about the veggie trade is that an awful lot of the labour is through backpackers and um, you know the itinerant workers. There are there's a lot of cases of it just totally exploitative um, employment practices, which mm-hmm. obviously I don't subscribe to. What we want to do is turn it from being a backers backpackers itinerant industry into a career. Yeah, but you can't do that if people are expected to live on $40,000 a year as, a, as an income. You can't, if you're a young person looking to have a family or, or a future, you can't. $40,000 a year is not going to cut it. You can't get a bank loan. Mm. So what we're trying to do is give people the skills, the land, the water, the environment, the access to sales, the business infrastructure so that through their labour they can get a living income growing vegetables. Yeah. And so that one acre project, this is our first year. Uh, we've got you met Zoe, our mm-hmm. one acre farmer. She's learning a lot. She's screwing up big time in many ways. But you know we're we're not forcing her straight off the bat to live only off what she produces. So we're sort of I suppose underwriting her. 
but in three years' time, hopefully, we'll kick her off and she can start her own block somewhere. And so we're growing the growers. Yeah. And so that, you know, Australia needs to know how to grow food. The, the average vegetable farmer's in their 50s, if not 60s now. Yeah. You know, in 10 years' time, who's going to be growing the food? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real problem. Yeah. And so we've got a, you know, you can stand around and say, geez, that's a big problem. Or, as a lot of people say, no, we'll just ship it over from China. Well, you know, no offence to China, but I'd rather eat food grown in Australia. <laughs> yeah. You know, myself. You <laughs> yeah, know, totally. You call me crazy, but... <laughs> and, and so we've got to build the, the infrastructure, the knowledge base, the know-how, the, the community. You know, it's... Um, if, if I want to get my tractor repaired, is there a guy who knows how to repair my tractor? If I need to buy an irrigation part, is there the part? There's not that, that uh, culture of yeah. vegetable farming in this, in this area. So we've got to build it. And that's what this farm's all about, building that culture. Fantastic. Yeah. And what sort of... I mean, people like Zoe, do you, how have you sort of gotten the word out to young people like her and what's the response from young people, I guess, as you say, growing the growers and getting younger people enthusiastic about agriculture and being able to tell them that they can make a living off it um, is, is so important. Yeah, it is. The, I think that in Australian culture, if you say, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think if you say to someone, I'm a veggie grower, they sort of think, right, you're one of those guys. You know, it's not, whereas if you say, um, you know, I'm a clothing designer or I'm a, I'm a coder for Google, then people are going to say, wow. Whereas if you say I'm a veggie farmer, they say, oh, really, what, you know, what do you do? <laughs> sort of yeah. move the conversation <laughs> on, right? And so it, in terms of uh, status within our culture, I don't think vegetable growers are particularly highly esteemed. And I think that's a pity because at the end of the day, you've got to get your food. I mean, you can live without, although it's getting harder, you can live without you know, Google, but you can't live without your food. Mm-hmm. So at some point, there's going to be a crisis. So you know, the, it's, there's not a lot of people, if you got lined up 10 people between 18 and 22 and said, right, put your hand up if you want to work for Google or put your hand up if you want to work on a veggie farm, I think out of 100, you might get two or say, yeah, I'll give the veggie farm a go. Right? And so the first problem is there's not a lot of people who want to do it. The second is the incomes. I mean, you know, first year out, someone learning to be a computer programmer would be, I don't know, 50,000, 60,000. You know, how does that compare to 35,000 for a level one farmhand? Doesn't look too good. Mm. So there's the income disparity. And then the fact that it's bloody hard work. I mean, you just today you're going to sweat like a pig. You know, in winter you're going to freeze like a polar bear. You know, why would you do it? You have to be mad. <laughs> you can sit in an air-conditioned office and, and earn a lot more money. So, yeah, people who... There's a lot of people who think it's a nice ideal, and it is a nice ideal. But at the end of the day, you've got to walk the walk, you know. You've got to get out there and freeze your ass off and get cooked in the heat and whatever and that's hard work and there's not a lot of people who want to do it so we're just lucky to find people who for whatever circumstances have said yep i'll give it a go the problem there is that you get you for every i don't know 20 people who say i'll give it a go no idea how to work Mm. you know if there's people who you say can you do three bunches of anything yeah no problem third bunch 
they're thinking this isn't the most interesting I've done but you need people to say okay guys 300 let's go yeah right um, and there's people who say yep righto onto it and there's people who say 300 man I could do 10 maybe you know and that just doesn't cut it you've got to I don't know if you've ever picked up onions, but you get a you get a one ton onion bin and you get your bucket and you think, right, I'm into this, I can do this, and you pour your bucket into the bin, and it doesn't even fill a corner, and you're thinking, I've got to fill that, yeah, <laughs> mate, it is, and then but what you got to do is you just got to say, right, one bucket at a time, that's it, and then you do it, and yeah, you'll fill the bin. It's a good feeling at the end too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, you know, spuds are the same. You you know, you got half a ton of spuds to dig you think never going to do it but you do it uh, but we need people who can do that and they're hard to find because mm-hmm. um, it's hard work and it's it's hard work f- for which you're underpaid yeah you have to be insane mm. to do it so we're changing that we're trying to give people a living wage and um, and you know and a lot of support so they don't have to do it all by themselves mm. and and they get paid for the produce they produce that's great you see, you see, I think, um, you know, from getting to know producers in the different regions we've covered, I've seen people doing a similar thing, like yeah. implementing sort of internship programs and um, giving people a certain amount of land which, which they can produce their own um, things on to get, get them into the swing of it. And like you say, it's important to have experienced producers like yourself and people know how it works from planting a seed to selling it at a market yeah. um, in, in order to get the economics right to provide yourself a wage to be educating young people about that because you know without it what do you do where, where do you go yeah so. well I started this with no knowledge whatsoever I, I have no idea what I'm doing I still don't think I've got a big idea of what I'm doing <laughs> but what I say to anyone who starts out of this is come and look at what we're doing because I've already made an awful lot of mistakes and it's much cheaper to learn off other people's mistakes. Yeah. Hell of a lot. I, I'm you know, fortunate in that I can afford to make a few mistakes and I've made some beauties. But <laughs> come and look at what we're doing. You know, learn from what we're doing. You know, I don't, I don't have any sort of proprietary secrets or you know, I don't get you to sign a confidentiality agreement or anything. It's, it's a community building thing. Come and work on the farm for a few days and see if you like it. Yeah. You know? Uh, we've had one guy who left at the end of last year and he's going to start out as a veggie grower. From my point of view, that's a huge success. Yep. You know, the, the fact that he now feels confident to go out on his own and do it, you know, that's, that's a feather in our cap because that's what we want. We want them pissing off so that we got the growers growing elsewhere yep. and then we can cycle in the new guys. Yeah, and then they can pass what they learn on to others in the same way. Yeah, and hopefully they will find mentors who come from a completely different school who have got a whole lot of tricks that we don't know and you know i would love to employ an old italian guy an old vietnamese guy an old lebanese guy an old maltese guy you know and just say guys right you know at the end of the day let's have united nations but during the day show us all the different techniques Mm. because those guys know it you know the those old chinese crowds man i i I don't know if you've ever seen them bunch um, shallots, but I don't know how they do it, you know, because I'm useless at shallots, but, man, they're good. So there's a whole lot of skills that yeah. are dying and are being lost, uh, and somehow we've got to capture that and document it or whatever or embody it in our practices so that it's an ongoing living, uh, what's the word, um, trade, yeah. you know, um, 
career, more than a career, it's a vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, that people live. I, I, I am um, the, what's the word? I am the recipient of a, an ancient planting chart from an old veggie grower in the district who gave it to me because I was the only guy growing veggies. So, you know, sitting on the wall in the shed is something that's a, that's a, a planting schedule that's evolved from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And that's hugely valuable. You know, when do you plant your peas? When do you plant your scarlet runners? When do you plant your spuds? When do you put in your cabbages? That's, that's knowledge that's going to take another 20 years to recover if I didn't have that. Yeah. And uh, I think that's special, you know. Yeah, it's very special. Probably wrap it up there, Phil. No worries, mate. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Quicksand Food Connection. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Phil Lavers from Moon Acres Farm in Fitzroy Falls. He's a fantastic bloke and he's very passionate about what he does and very realistic. And I hope that you learned something from his insights into the economics of organic vegetable production. I certainly did. If you want to find out more about Moon Acres Farm, you can visit their website, which is moonacres.squarespace.com, or you can find them on Facebook, their Moon Acres Farm on Facebook. If you want to find out more about Quicksand Food, you can visit our website, quicksandfood.com, or you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook, which is at quicksandfood. If you want to get any more of the Southern Highlands cookbook episodes of the Quicksand Food Connection podcast, you can go to our website, quicksandfood.com, where they're all available to download for free. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation and we'll check in with you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.